Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us again together this evening to speak to us. We marvel that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe, and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your work. We pray that you would sanctify us and purify us through your word. We pray that it would accomplish everything that you have set out for it to accomplish. In Jesus' name and in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated. And keep your Bibles handy. We're going to turn to a couple different passages of Scripture this evening as we consider this question that comes to us in the Heidelberg Catechism, or these questions. And you know, the faculty at the seminary has been going through a series on Thursdays titled, uh, Questions That Jesus Asked, which is really interesting to think about the questions that Jesus asked people rather than the questions that people asked Jesus. And Scott Clark recently addressed the question when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? That he asked his disciples. And he noted that the first response, that some people say that he was John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and some say a prophet. In other words, the man on the street, kind of the consensus or the ideas might be that he could be any one of these people, or they didn't really know for sure, but there's a lot of different opinions about who Jesus might be. And then Jesus looked at Peter, and he said, well, who do you say that I am? Not just what's the general tenor out there, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him, and he said, blessed are you, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but it has been borne out to you by my Father through the Holy Spirit. In other words, rightly recognizing and knowing who Jesus is is not a human discovery. It's a divine gift. It's something that's given to us where we rightly recognize and rightly call upon the name of Jesus. In our culture and society, people love religion. They love spirituality in general. But they don't necessarily love the specificity of Christianity, the exclusiveness of it. And yet, according to the scriptures, there is salvation in no other name or no other person than Jesus. And so to focus on that name is uh, kind of going back and looking at this is how scripture presents the reality by recognizing and naming Jesus in our creeds and our confessions and catechism also recognize it. When we confess the Apostles' Creed every week, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. In the Nicene Creed, we say, I believe in our Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. He was made man. He was crucified for us, suffered and was buried, rose again and ascended into heaven and will come again. We recognize and confess the name of Jesus, rightly knowing and confessing who Jesus is as a matter of life and in death. Question 29 asks, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be found in anyone else. It's kind of directing our attention to rightly recognize who the Savior is and what his mission is. And this evening, I'd really like to look at two things. First, recognize that Jesus is named by his Father. And that second, salvation is only in the name of Jesus. 
the catechism is really addressing both of these things. And I want to look at them. The first point will be relatively short. And then the second one is going to unpack the reality that salvation is only in the name of Jesus. But it's interesting to note that Jesus is named by his father. The first thing we want to look at tonight. It's really a divine birth announcement. Look, if you will, in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 1. Names often tell us something about a person or about their character. Parents generally take time to consider and discuss names for their kids, right? You would be shocked to find a parent at a hospital after nine months when asked, what are you going to name him or her? And they look around and say, well, you know what? I never really thought about it. It does happen. I know of one case. But it's unusual, There's an anticipation and a thinking about this. And all of the scripture is pointing forward to Jesus being the Christ. And here we have an announcement. After 400 years of silence from the Old Testament, there's a cacophony of responses to, uh, or or birth announcements to uh, shepherds, to Mary, to Zacharias, uh, and to the shepherds coming out and saying who Jesus is. But look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is really the birth announcement that God the Father is saying, this is what I want my son to be called. Joseph, his earthly father, will also call him that, but the father is giving us this birth announcement. His name means something. It's telling us about his character. It's telling about his purpose. It's telling us about his authority. It's telling us about his mission. Isn't it interesting that the name Jesus, which means Savior, is connected to Emmanuel, which means God with us. Our Savior is our God. Our Savior is God with us to save us. We call upon the name of Jesus. We call upon Jesus. We run to him. We flee to him. We believe in him. We trust him. And the text says that he delivers his people from their sins. What a great reality. He doesn't just provide a way of salvation. He doesn't just make it possible. He is on a rescue mission. He's not instituting a self-improvement project. Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. And we know from the rest of Scripture that not one of his will be lost. Every one of his sheep will come, all of them. Nobody will be able to snatch his people out of his hands. And so when we use the name of Jesus, 
We're invoking God, our Savior, our friend, our shepherd, our Lord. And when we use the name of Jesus, it tells us something about him. He is our Savior, and he saves us from our sins, all of them. And he unites us to his Father now and always. And so the very first thing I just wanted to mention, and just briefly here, is to recognize that the name means something. It's pointing to a character, it's pointing to a purpose, it's pointing to a mission. And that Jesus is named by his heavenly Father, and Jesus is named by his earthly Father, and his name is Jesus. And he is the one who saves his people from their sins. And the second thing we want to look at is that salvation is only in the name of Jesus. Heidelberg 30 asks the question, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer says no, although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. In other words, what the catechism is saying is that there is no self-salvation and no self-improvement project going on that can make us right with God. There is no salvation from any other person besides Jesus. And there is no salvation through anything else, through good works, through efforts, through gifts, through giving. In other words, Jesus plus anything or Jesus minus anything is a false religion, a false gospel, or a false hope. It's Christ alone. It's Jesus alone. And in Jesus, there is a full and complete salvation, a perfect salvation, nothing missing. He saves to the uttermost. He doesn't just come and make salvation possible. Jesus saves. It's a great comfort to us. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 3. I'd like to look at a story that really plays this out for us. I'll read a rather, a rather longer, uh, a longer portion this evening. But as we read it, listen to all the t- times that the word Jesus is mentioned or the name of Jesus or that something's done in the name of Jesus. It's all highlighting this reality. It's quite a funny story in one way that uh, Peter and uh, John heal a man and they do it in the name of Jesus. And the religious leaders want him to stop saying or stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And while he's doing that, people are praising Jesus. And so it's a very funny scene. While the the leaders are trying to get him to stop saying Jesus, the crowd is praising Jesus. And this is the scene that we'll look at. Notice all the times again that the name of Jesus is mentioned or just the word Jesus. Let's start in verse uh, chapter 3 verse 1. But in particular, we're going to look at uh, the first 21 verses of chapter 4. So listen to this whole story, though. Hear the word of God. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... He asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who was at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our power or our piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name. By faith in his name. Has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus. Has given the man this perfect health. In the presence of you all. And now brothers I know that you acted in ignorance. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all, all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So far the reading of God's holy word. It's really a remarkable story, isn't it, to think about. I like to kind of look at it in terms of three scenes. First, the arrest, and then the hearing, and then a judgment. The arrest, the hearing, and the judgment. The arrest of Peter and John noted all, note all those who are aligned against them. The priests, the captain of the temple, who's second in rank to the high priest, the temple guards, the Sadducees, which is a group of people who denied the resurrection, to uh, the high priest, rulers, elders, teachers of the law. A rather impressive array of people seeking to arrest them. And they were greatly annoyed because it was a threat to their authority. It was a threat to their rule. It was a threat to their power. It was being disarmed. And they were concerned that Peter and John were teaching the people and that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they were concerned really with two things, their method of preaching, teaching to the people, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And the apostles were not just claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead, though true, and they were eyewitnesses of that, but because he was raised from the dead, that those who believed in him are raised from the dead spiritually now and will be raised at the last days as well. And the Sadducees flat out rejected it, and others rejected it as well. And so they wanted them to stop teaching the people in general, and in particular, stop this message about the resurrection. Stop this. Forty days earlier, these same religious leaders had hoped that they would stop the Christian message by killing Jesus. They were the ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted this nonsense to stop. And they thought that by killing Jesus, it would end this cult, this Christianity thing that was starting to come about. But killing Jesus, crucifying him, didn't stop it. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, and his followers were more emboldened. They want to go back to the status quo. They want their power and their authority. But here it is. 
Peter and John, fishermen, proclaiming a great truth about Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so they were attempting to intimidate Peter and John, to get them to stop teaching the people and, in particular, proclaiming the message of the resurrection of Jesus. We sometimes, too, are intimidated, aren't we, to bring up the name of Jesus. We may fear the mockery or the shame or the laughter or the estrangement or being labeled as a zealot or a freak or a fanatic sometimes. Note that it says in verse 6 that many who had heard the word believed. 5,000 people believed. It's easy for us to get focused on the lame man walking. That's amazing. But through what they preached, 5,000 people believed and were saved that day. That's a remarkable miracle. 5,000 people who didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. 5,000 people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. 5,000 people were made alive and united to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Through the proclamation that their sins are forgiven and that they can have eternal life in this Jesus. One group of people was seizing him, trying to arrest him and stop him. And another group, 5,000 of them, were singing God's praises. This has been the battle going on throughout all of Scripture in the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Those who do what is right in their own eyes and those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Isn't it interesting that they had all heard the same message? They all had the same information. They all saw the same things, this man being... um, Raised a cripple? What made the difference? Some of them have been given the grace to see. Some of them have been given the grace to hear. Some of them have been given new hearts. Some of them have been saved by the Savior. Not just data going forth, but called by a voice effectually. Come unto me, we heard in our call to worship. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus did just that. He's the one who gave them the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to believe. And so the first thing we want to look at is the arrest, but then there's a hearing. Peter and John are actually set in the midst of the court, if you will, most likely a half moon shape, kind of like if we were to appear before the Supreme Court. It's very formidable. It's very scary. This is the same court that had tried Jesus just a few weeks earlier. And the crux of the matter, they say, by what power and in what name did you do this? In other words, who do you think you are? We're the religious leaders. We've got all the pedigrees. We've got the right things behind our name. By what right, by what authority, by what power are you going about talking about Jesus and teaching the people and proclaiming this resurrection? Who are you? By what authority are you doing this? And then they give their opening defense. And I submit to you that the Holy Spirit is really the defense attorney here. (laughs) Because it says Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it had been promised to them by Jesus that when the time came for them to speak, that he would give them the words to say. And here's a promise of Jesus being fulfilled in them. The courage of Peter and John in such a circumstance is astonishing, isn't it? It would be pretty intimidating. Particularly in light of Peter's denial just 40 days earlier, roughly, 
where he denied Jesus three times. He had been asked by a Jewish girl out by a fire, you're with Jesus, aren't you? He said, no, I don't know him. Three times. And now 40 plus days later, he's standing in front of the highest courts in the land and he is proclaiming boldly the resurrection of Jesus. What changed? He saw the resurrected Savior. Peter was an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness. They had a redemptive encounter with the risen Christ. And then they had spent 40 days with him, being taught by him about what he was going to commission them to do to lay the foundation for the church to preach the gospel. They saw him ascend into heaven, and then they were those who were present on Pentecost, being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were eye and ear witnesses to the things that they are testifying about. They don't serve a dead, sa- dead hero. They serve a living Savior. He is risen, beloved. He is risen. Peter begins the address by noting the kindness of the act. He says, is this really something worthy to put us on trial, that we did this good deed? He said, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? Evidence or exhibit A is that this man's physically healed in the name of Jesus. The word used for healed is also the same word used for saved. It functions on both levels here. He was healed of his physical infirmities, but he was saved. He was forgiven. He was receiving times of refreshment, the gift of the Spirit, faith. He turned from his sins to Christ. And he was guaranteed to be part of the eternal rule and reign of Christ when he returns. Peter could have simply answered the question, when asked in whose name with one word, Jesus. Pastor Godfrey was a lawyer previously, and he's taught me over and over, if I ever get hauled before a court, I think he's concerned about something, but if I ever get hauled before a court, he said, just answer the question that's asked, don't add any information, right? Peter could have simply said, Jesus. By what name? Jesus. But what does Peter do? He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now the tables are turned, aren't they? Who's on trial now? Not Peter and John, but those who rejected the Messiah, those who crucified Jesus Christ. This is a massive turning of the tables. He says, whom God raised from the dead, exhibit B. This man, who's been lame for 40 years, is walking around, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. And Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, was raised three days later. He doubles down. He says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he's become the very cornerstone. You rejected him, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have become the very foundation, the very cornerstone of our salvation, the very cornerstone of life and life eternal, of forgiveness of sins, of righteousness, of the restoration of all things, of perfect peace, when we will be raised again in the new heavens and the new earth. 
No more disease, no more sickness, no more illness, no more death, no more racism, no more sexism, no more abuse, no more scandal, no more lies, no more nothing like that. Just peace and love and harmony and grace and holiness. We promised a part of that. He said, you killed the author of life. That's a staggering phrase. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. The but gods of the Bible are such a great reversal of recognizing you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has raised us up with him. You killed the author of life, but God raised him up. And Peter goes on to have a closing argument. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no salvation in anyone else, for there is salvation in no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. He is the one who came. He is the one who conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered death. He is the one who calmed storms, made the lame to walk, the blind to see. He forgave sins. He raised people from the dead. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was crucified. Buried, rose again, he reigns, and he's promised to return. All of those things are pointing to the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is who the whole Old Testament was saying would be revealed in a person when God comes to rescue his people, when a lion from the tribe of Judah comes, and his name is Jesus. Imagine if Peter and John had gotten invited to go on the Oprah show or Jimmy Fallon, or Colbert, or Kimmel, or the equivalent of in the first century. Anyone who's done nice things can go on the show. You've helped the poor. You feed the hungry. You build a house. You provide charity. You've done good deeds. Amazing. The story would be remarkable. This guy's been lame for 40 years, and now he's walking around. Amazing. But imagine if they started to say, and there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ. Start to unplug, oh, cut the broadcast. It's great that this good deed was done, but when we start to get into the exclusive claims of Christianity, people get uncomfortable. But the exclusive claims are crucial, essential to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so in our day, of course, some people will say, well, that's intolerant. Maybe. But a better question is, is it true? No other name under heaven is not an exaggeration. It's not an overstatement. It is simply and profoundly an important truth claim. We do no one any good by lying about this or watering it down in any way. False prophets and false teachers will try to avoid this. But beloved, no one else died for you other than Jesus. No one else lived for you other than Jesus. No one else could have possibly endured the wrath of God that rested against you as a sinner other than Jesus. 
No one else was raised from the dead for you. No one else is both truly God and truly man. Can you imagine a more perfect mediator between God and man than one who is God and man? No one else can forgive your sins. No one else can impute righteousness to you. No one else can give you eternal life. And so Jesus plus or minus anything is a false gospel. Religions other than Christianity fail because they stress salvation by works rather than by grace. Our salvation is God to man. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus has been given to men by God himself to show that salvation has its origin in God. And so the final scene is really a gag order. After all of this, they could not deny, the leaders could not deny what had happened. And so they charged them not to speak in that name anymore. Notice throughout this, the leaders themselves cannot even bring themselves to mention the name Jesus. They never utter it. They can't even bring themselves to say it. And Peter and John refuse. They're going to go on preaching Jesus as the only hope for the sinner or the Savior, as the Savior. In verse 21, it says, When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Jesus is doing exactly what his name indicates. He's saving. And to be saved from our sins is our greatest need. We are by nature, Scripture says, under wrath and condemnation. Our greatest need is to be saved from our sins and to have the wrath of God turned from us. Jesus is more than a moral example, though he is that. He is our Savior. Again, not just making it possible, but saving. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death, uh, from continuing their office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession for us. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day conquering Satan, conquering sin, conquering death, and he lives. And he calls. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. So there is a bit of offensiveness to Christianity in the exclusive claim. It's very exclusive. There's no other name, no other way to be saved than in Jesus. But note the inclusiveness of it too. Everyone. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, well-educated, not well-educated, rich, poor, anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus is saved. There's no other name, there's no other authority, there's no other person, there's no other character. We call upon the name of Jesus. We are baptized into the name of Jesus. And we are given a new name, Scripture says. It'd be great for my sermon if the name that we were giving was Jesusians. 
but the name we're given is Christians. But you're given a new name. You weren't a Christian, and now you're a Christian. You were an enemy of God, and now you're a child of God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. You know, John ends his gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so for any here tonight who may not have yet called upon the name of Jesus, I implore you, I urge you, I beg you, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, come. Come, call upon Jesus, repent of your sins, and you will be saved. And for those of you who already know him, rest in the knowledge that he is not only a partial savior or a half savior or waiting for you to go the rest of the way, but he saves to the uttermost. Everything that you have needed, God has provided in Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You are declared righteous. You are adopted. You are loved. You are destined and bound for glory. And there is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from the love of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for revealing to us your son, Jesus, because we wouldn't have been able to figure this out or discover this on our own. We thank you that he doesn't just provide a way of salvation for us, but that he actually saves. We thank you that he paid the penalty for our sin, that he lived a life of righteousness in our stead. We're humbled by the fact that even now he is at your right hand interceding for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We pray that you would help us to grow in this grace and mercy which you have given us, that we would look to and call upon Christ alone, Jesus alone, and not be tempted to trust in anyone in addition to or besides him. It's in his name, washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness, and indwelt by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.